Hi, I'm Emma. I'm Sean. Thanks for joining us again on the Blue Side Podcasts, the podcast for the Science Communication Society for the University of Cambridge. So on the show today, we bring you an extended interview with Dr. Richard Mackay at the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Cambridge. Yep. So I spoke to Richard about his newly released book, Patient Zero and the Making of the AIDS Epidemic. Richard discusses the contents of the book and what people might find enjoyable or interesting from it and his career and research leading up to it. Yeah, and coming up in the research highlight section, I have a quick chat with a very good friend of mine, uh, Christina Glackover, who works at the MRC Laboratory on Molecular Biology, about her recent paper on the structure of oxid parkin and its implication for the understanding of early onset Parkinson's disease. Before we begin, I'd first like to say I'm very grateful to Dr. Richard McKay for agreeing to be interviewed. Richard was my director of studies when I studied history and philosophy of science myself in my second year at university, and the subject's still something I'd like to return to one day. Richard spoke to me about his new book, Patient Zero and the Making of the AIDS Epidemic. He told me about his personal experiences and life events that feed into the book, which was constructed over, I think, much of his career. He also discusses some of the contents in the book in more detail and gives insight into some of the nuance and subtlety there is to be found across the topic. I really recommend you pick up a copy of the book. It's available at Heffords if you're in Cambridge yourself, or you can find it online on Amazon. Um, I think the University of Chicago Press have it, they published it, and it's even available as an audiobook. I hope you enjoy the interview. Richard, do you want to tell me, first of all, sort of your title, what you do in the History and Philosophy of Science Department in Cambridge? Sure. So I'm a Wellcome Trust Research Fellow at the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Cambridge. I arrived at the university in 2013 to work on a project that I developed called the Before HIV Project, which grows out of my master's and my doctoral work looking at the AIDS epidemic in North America and the history of that epidemic. And so the project I'm working on here at Cambridge is looking at what came before that from around the 1930s to the 1980s. How did public health workers become interested in men who have sex with men as a group of people who were considered at risk for acquiring and transmitting venereal disease? Sexually transmitted infections, as we would call it now, but back in the language of the day, venereal disease or VD. And you've written a book, and uh, I hesitate to say just written because you said you've been working on it for a very long time. Uh, that's right. Uh, the book is called Patient Zero and the Making of the AIDS Epidemic. It was released by the University of Chicago Press in November 2017. So relatively speaking, it's hot off the presses. Uh, and it began in 2005 as a topic that I was proposing for my PhD and it became the focus of my master's dissertation. Then my ongoing doctoral work which I completed in 2011 and for the years after that it was refining the ideas writing them in a, in a writing them in a more succinct way and um, fleshing out the research. And so it has taken a very long time. It's a kind of a labor of love. 
and a lot of relationships having to be managed over the time because in the course of doing my PhD work, I did 50 interviews um, and keeping in touch with those interviewees, keeping them up to date about the development of the project um, has meant that, yeah, it's it's required a lot of work over the years yeah. and it's really gratifying to see it finally out in the world and and connecting with readers. Do you want to tell us what the book is about then, sort of the core idea? Where to begin? Maybe I should start by saying where I, how I became interested in writing a history, uh, being interested in studying the history of the AIDS epidemic. Um, I'm a gay man. When I was in my early 20s and still very much in the closet, um, I went for an HIV test, my very first one, after I'd met another man and began, began a relationship. And that test came back positive. And it took several months for this test result to be understood for what it was, which was a false positive diagnosis. Um, but that experience and that uncertainty was really, really mind, mind altering, life changing, uh, very upsetting. Uh, and I really experienced what it was like to have an understanding of what all the messages that society might allow us to think about sexually transmitted infections hit me all at once. And I wasn't really aware that I, I, I knew some of these things, but some of, and I talk about this in the introduction to the book, explaining how I came to write this, but it was this very real felt sense that uh, other people uh, through the years, through the centuries, have talked about sexually transmitted infections and venereal disease. Uh, if you're infected, you get a sense of self-pollution, feeling blameworthy, uh, feeling dirty. And it was so striking that uh, it took me a while to kind of work through that. And it was a real relief when I found out that my test was I was one of a relatively rare group of people whose blood cross-reacted with the type of test that they did then. And so that sensitized me to both the level of complexity and interpretation into something that I had previously assumed was fairly straightforward, like a scientific <laughs> medical test. Um, and because I'd always had an interest in history beforehand, when it came time to consider I was thinking about doing a master's degree I thought I would enjoy doing a master's in history and I thought the history of AIDS would be a fascinating topic both in terms of having a real personal significance but also in terms of bringing in a mix of the scientific the medical the social and the political all together. I was very grateful to Richard for telling me a little bit of the personal side to the making of the book. Um, he went on to talk about how another book he read at the time provided inspiration for his own. And so one of the first books that I read when I was trying to you know, understand more and having, having had this experience was Randy Schultz's book, And the Band Played On. And I was really taken by his reporting. He was a journalist. Uh, working in San Francisco uh, at 
one of the only openly gay journalists working for a major newspaper in the United States. And San Francisco was one of the epicenters in the early 1980s um, of the emerging AIDS epidemic. And he made it, he eventually made it his purpose to write, uh, investigate this and, and write stories for the paper. And then eventually decided that he wanted to, uh, that in order to be able to make the type of impact that he wanted to have, he needed to write a book because that would be the only thing that would go from take his uh, stories and storytelling um, and uncovering, as he was finding it, uncovering of uh, lackadaisical, slow response by the institutions who he thought should be responding. Um, he thought the only way to make a difference would be to get have a book that could then have an impact on the national level debate about the epidemic. And that book was published in 1987 and is called And the Band Played On. So I read And the Band Played On and I was really swept up in it, swept away by his writing. And there was one story in particular that jumped off the page at me and it was the story of Patient Zero, which yeah. Schiltz in his book was the first to identify uh, a man who had been at the focus, the focal point of an early epidemiological study that was carried out by researchers at the Centers for Disease Control. So it was early on in trying to figure out what the epidemic was in 1982. Okay, uh, we'll be back with Richard's interview in a little bit. I hope you've enjoyed it so far. But now we're going to go talk to Emma and her short research highlight with Christina Gladkova. Yes, so as you've noticed, Sean did most of the work for this um, episode. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to take over for the research highlight section. Um, so a good friend of mine, Christina, just published a really cool paper on the structure of active parking. Um, so for this um, highlight, we thought we'd do something slightly different and I decided to talk directly to Christina about it. So here's my little chat with Christina. Hi Christina. Hi Emma. <laughs> so you recently published the 3D structure of active parking. Um, so first question, what is parking and what does it do inside cells? Um, so parking takes care of energy houses of the cell that go wrong. So essentially each cell produces energy in mitochondria. Um, and when the mitochondria break, they need to be cleared away. Uh, and Parkin is involved essentially in recognizing these mitochondria and labeling them for destruction mm -hmm. so that the cell can recognize them. Um, and if this system breaks, that could lead to early onset Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. So what was it important to know what the active form of the protein looks like compared to what was known before, which was just inactive yeah. uh, Parkin? Um, so we know that in that pink one, which is a kinase, recognizes these mitochondria and it phosphorylates parkin, um, which modifies the structure somehow. And we didn't know how that is, which is the activation that you talk about. Um, and we didn't know how phosphorylation, which is adding a very small chemical group, leads to such a large scale change mm -hmm. in the active structure, which we think um, happens. Um, and if we wanted to target with drugs the active form preferentially, we need to know what it looks like and how it's different um, from the inactive form. Um, in order to be able to distinguish between the two. Mm -hmm. And so how did you, what strategy did you use to solve the structure? Um, so it turned out to be very important first to look at Parkin 
um, and how it moves essentially in solution mm -hmm. to be able to translate that to stabilize it so that we can solve the structure. Mm -hmm. um, so what we did is, is look how it moves in the active state, which nobody has ever done before. Um, and it turned out that an entire domain at the end of the protein, which is this, this quite large chunk, um, becomes mobile. And we figured that we needed to cut it off in order to for, form a unit that can crystallize, which is what we need in order to solve the structure. So as you were working on this, um, I believe you also identified any class of mutations in Parkin, which um, has been associated with early onset Parkinson's. So I was wondering if you could tell us what these mutations are and, and how they cause uh, problems in the activation of Parkin according to uh, the structure that you solved. So in Parkin, the domains do actually completely rearrange upon activation. Um, and when one of the domains is unlocked from the position where it is in the inactive state, um, it essentially exposes a surface on the protein which needs to be bound by something because otherwise it will start aggregating and causing more issues in the cell. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't clear to us how that surface is, is taken care of in the active state. Um, and then we found essentially in an unstudied region of the protein, we found a stretch of amino acids which bind that surface. And it turns out that there are patients with mutations in that stretch of amino acids and that it, that previously un 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 unidentified stretch is very important for um, the function of the protein. So those, those are any mutations. Yeah. Cool. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks to Christina for uh, braving the microphone and agreeing to talk to me. Um, so now we'll go back to uh, Richard's interview with Sean. Yep. Thanks, Emma. So Richard had just begun telling me about the book And the Band Played On, where he was first struck by the story of Patient Zero a man who had been at the center of American research's investigations into the AIDS epidemic at the Center for Disease Control. And this is, of course, a story which ultimately gives Richard's book its title. And, let's see, abbreviating quite a bit. <laughs> um, these researchers were trying to establish whether whatever AIDS was was caused by something that was sexually transmissible and this was one hypothesis among many but there wasn't a lot of evidence to support it so when in uh, early 1982 reports came from California that a number of AIDS cases people who were were sick had reportedly had sexual contact with one another uh, this seemed like a really exciting uh, lead to explore because it could potentially provide evidence to support the notion of a sexually transmissible agent as opposed to um, a genetic cause which was another one of the ideas or that it wasn't a specific new uh, infectious agent but rather the cumulative toll of repeated reinfections of typical um, sexually transmissible viruses and infections. So that was focused on California. So it was initially focused on California and uh, there were, uh, so the researchers went out to California and did interviews with these men and if they died with people that were close to them to be able to establish what their sexual relationships were in the months before they became sick. And a number of they were struck by the fact that a number of these men who did not appear to know each other 
all named one individual as a sexual contact and that that person didn't live in California and he was resided outside of the state. This individual they included and they put at this eventually put in the center of their their representation of these very complex relationships. Imagine people moving around, yeah. not not and and having a, quite a large number of sexual partners, as was the um, as as was the way in that time in 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 the parts of the gay community in which they were moving, and it was very difficult to try to represent all these shifting relationships uh, in some kind of under, easily understandable graphical representation, but the researchers endeavored to do so. And in various representations, or visual representations of the study, this patient who did not reside in California, who they labeled the out of California case, uh, or patient O for short, they he was placed at the center of these representations. And what I show in the book is that there isn't one single factor which results in the creation of the idea of patient zero. Uh, but, but there were a number of overlapping mechanisms. And one of those mechanisms was the attempt to be able to represent visually uh, very complex conceptual relationships. Yeah, yeah, so it's a focus of a, a web. Yes. That's the start point. And, and it's not as simple as a confusing O for zero. Absolutely not. I, and <laughs> one, I mean, that was one of the sub-questions that I wanted to look at because um, when I began the research, when I began the research, it seemed clear to me that anybody who knew anything about the history of the epidemic did not believe that patient zero, this individual, um, had introduced the virus to North America uh, or was responsible for its spread. Um, and that, that this was deemed to be more like a popular misconception of the early epidemiology. And so I was not interested in dis. It wasn't my intent to say it wasn't patient zero. That seemed to be very well established already, but I was interested in how this idea came about in the first place and who some of the key amplifiers, if you will, of this story were that allowed it, the both the idea and the term patient zero to spread across North America and become established as uh, a popular phrase, but also um, a way of explaining how the epidemic started. I see. And sorry, is that, is that the focus of the book or is that the focus of your earlier research that led into the book? You could, I think you could say both. both. So, <laughs> so the, the resulting book is an attempt to bring that research together. Okay. It looks at the historical antecedents to the term because the per term patient zero did not exist before the researchers at the Centers for Disease Control inadvertently coined it. And that was one of the things I was trying to work out uh, among many was where did the specific coining happen? Um, and you could trace it officially to when, a, when one version of the study that was carried out in 1982 was published in 1984. 
and without question, uh, although the, re the researchers had been referring to this individual as patient O, in this published output, it appears as a zero. So any subsequent sayings that it was a misunderstanding by the media or the general public of the O, it yeah. were a bit too simplistic. Yeah. Um, similarly, to just say that the man wouldn't have been labeled, wouldn't have been seen as a focal point for the epidemic would also be it to say that he wouldn't have occupied the position as a focal point of the epidemic if the O had not been mistaken for a zero. That's also too simplistic. And so one of the chapters of the book is a deep dive into the cluster study as the Centers for Disease Control's work in this area was called in 1982. As we kept talking, Richard went on to describe how his book deals with the cluster study and with the origin of the term patient zero. Chapter two is a deep dive into the cluster study and looking at uh, epidemiological practice, um, the behind the scenes of the investigation, how they became interested in uh, this individual, and then also how this study seemed to stand in for, as an important marker of early efforts for AIDS research. Because initially it pointed in the direction that AIDS was sexually transmissible, which ultimately turned, it, AIDS was caused by a sexually transmissible agent, which is ultimately true. We now know that uh, AIDS is caused by uh, a virus we call HIV. And let me backtrack. Before the cluster study, the term patient zero did not exist. However, the desire to be able to trace an epidemic to the earliest cases, to be able to see what distinguished them from later ones, and to see whether there is interesting or useful information that can be derived from that, that impulse goes back a long way. And I argue in the first chapter of the book that the eventual term patient zero, as it was coined in 1982, drew upon a much longer tradition. So I, I look at the different elements that that I look at the different elements that animate the term patient zero and kind of give it the type of force and power that it eventually went on to have. One of the intriguing aspects of the term patient zero is people use it and reach for it because it seems to uh, it seems to make sense to them and so and, and it there's an, a real irony there because it's it's widely used but nobody really seems to there's a lot of there's constantly disagreement about how this term is supposed to be used yeah. <laughs> um, which then results in misunderstandings upon misunderstandings um, so uh, if I'm if I were to guide you through the book uh, the the chapter one is the, the historical antecedents reaching back sometimes you know hundreds of years Chapter two really is a deep dive into the early epidemiological work carried out by the Centers for Disease Control and how the term patient O became patient zero. Uh, chapter three looks at how Randy Schiltz, the journalist uh, based in San Francisco who wrote and the band played on, how he did his research and, and eventually became interested in the story of patient zero and then worked to find out who this man was and 
uncover enough information about that man's story to build a compelling and I mean, very devastating, uh, devastating representation of the man, which I, in doing my research, I, I went through the interview notes that the journalist carried out with people that he interviewed and looked and tried to read them against the grain, say, okay, well, this is what ended up in the final book. What other information did he collect? What different images of Gaetan Dugas, the man Schiltz identified as patient zero, what different images of Gaetan Dugas could we draw uh, from the information that is in Schiltz's notes? Right. So, so, there's, so there's a personal examination as well. It just, you had the terminology, that, and then there's sort of focusing on the real elements of you know, real people. Mm. I mean, th I'd say that life stories, kind of using, I use biography a lot. The book, the book is not a biography. If it's a biography of anything, it would be the biography of an idea. It's the mm -hmm. biography of the notion of patient zero, its ancestors, its rise, and then its eventual demise and falling out of favor. Uh, but it uses uh, individuals' life experiences and follows people closely. Uh, one of the CBC investigators, Bill Darrow, I follow very closely through his career in chapter two. In chapter three, um, there's a really detailed history I've written for the first time about Randy Schiltz, um, working through kind of tons of boxes of his papers um, that were left uh, to the San Francisco Public Library after he died, and working to try and understand him as a complex historical actor. Uh, and then the I mean, the, the key additional chapter where we is the final one where I draw on all this information to try to present a more sensitive patient's perspective for Gaetan Dugas. And I should say a little something about um, for the last, no, since the 1970s, um, in the history of medicine, which is my kind of subfield of the history of science more broadly. Uh, in the history of medicine, there's been a real push uh, over a generation or so to question and problematize the information that we receive about um, biomedical encounters, given that most of those records are left by one side only. Doctors hold more power, typically, in those relationships and in writing up the notes and writing their memoirs and taking advantage of patient confidentiality, which is an important, is a very important uh, protocol. It's a very, it's very important to have patient confidentiality, but one unintended impact is that patients' voices can be marginalized or not heard. Right. And so chap the last chapter of the book really draws upon this history. And, and I, I began to think of patient zero as an example of there being the total nullification of a patient's experience. If this is what historians of medicine have been urging us to do is to think, you know, how did the patient experience this? Uh, isn't it ironic that for one of the most famous and demonized patients in recent history, uh, there is a very one sided narrative uh, that was drawn in large part from uh, accounts of physicians who 
because of the work that they were trying to do, you could say we're almost guaranteed to have an oppositional uh, uh, position to this man who experienced, uh, evidently experienced their interventions and their, their cautions and their um, suggestions that he completely abstained from sex um, as a severe measure for which he demanded proof. And the proof that they offered him was his own body and his own sexual encounters with other people, which they attributed these other other individuals' uh, infections. And there's part of the book will goes into why the evidence. <laughs> there's good reason to to question now the uh, given what we now know about the incubation periods. Uh, the incubation period for HIV infection, the type of transmission that investigators thought they were seeing in among the sexual contacts of this individual uh, were based on the notion that HIV could be transmitted and then cause AIDS in another individual in less than a year, uh, which is much, much, much shorter than the uh, the incubation period that we would now know and accept and there are occasions where it might uh, that process might happen much much faster uh, in some individuals and yet as a as a kind of a general rule it it's makes the assumption that this man had sex with his partners and then within a few months they started displaying symptoms it makes that notion very problematic and so there's a sense of I think empathy that can build up for this individual, given what we now know and his resistance to uh, the information that was given and the subsequent demonization that he received as a result of pushing back. Um, that being said, it also shows, uh, the history also shows the challenges facing doctors and about trying to, doctors and other public health officials to try and offer guidance in a time when all the information isn't known and making decisions on the basis of kind of fragmentary knowledge. So it's whilst whilst presenting a sympathetic and sensitive account on behalf of uh, this one patient, patient zero, um, it, the history that I have written also shows the, the complexity uh, that isn't easily rendered by the soundbite, for example, mm -hmm. that O was uh, mistaken for zero, Correct. which was which was um, in the Nature article that I was a co-author on. That was one of the that was one of the bits that kind of got drawn out in the media, um, and it's as always much more complicated than just the soundbite. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, yeah, that was very interesting. Thanks for summarizing the book for us there. Um, we are running out of time. Uh, so, is there anything else you sort of uh, would like to mention about the the book or your studies that quickly that you think is uh, important. Hmm. I appreciate it's very open-ended question, yes. sir. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, it doesn't matter if there isn't. Uh... Well, the thing I would like to say, and this is, you know, I say this uh, with some good humor, is that there is something in this book for everyone. It, it <laughs> is, re I, I look back at it now and I, and, you know, I spent over 10 years researching and writing it. And there is a lot of archival detail uh, that's never been published before. 
Um, there's discussions of you know, the complexity and the challenges of using images in science and what happens when uh, meanings are caught up in, and contained in a, in a library of documents that members of a research team have access to and they use in their conversations. But as that, that idea and the study moves into the public realm and becomes pu published, the members of the public and other researchers don't always have access to that library of documents. So images that make its way, make their way from that initial context into the wider world might not have enough information for people to fully understand. And that's one of the things I would say I, happened with regard to the visual representations of patient zero and the cluster study. And despite very careful efforts by researchers, the process of communicating research can result in decisions being made to highlight certain aspects and deciding what, what to get, what to cut. And it can, yeah, it can lead the public and the, and the media in, into, you know, a direction against yeah. the one you want them to lead. Um, there is, the book has a huge amount uh, to, to say about the AIDS epidemic as it was experienced in gay communities across North America. And because the flight attendant in question did live and move among different cities, uh, it allows an interlinking of the ways that the ways people were responding to the the epidemic and the unfolding uh gradual understanding of what this might mean um and uh some of the fears and the rumors that circulated um and we haven't talked a lot about the in this interview we haven't talked a lot about one of the uh, suggestions also attributed to the flight attendant was not only was he an, an initial case, but that he also uh, attempted to spread his infection deliberately. And whilst we don't have time to go into that now, I do go into that substantially in the book. And I uh, argue that that is uh, very likely in, infused with uh, a widely circulating rumor that uh, was 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 you know being transmitted around at that time um, so and there's there's stuff about uh, the history of journalism uh, and it's an attempt as well to integrate uh, a Canadian history of the epidemic with an American one so to aim for kind of a more uh, intertwined North American history um, you are Canadian yourself. I am Canadian myself, so that that did seem like an Im important corrective to be able to offer <laughs> to uh, a story which had often been presented as uh, as an outsider bringing in disease to the United States and just saying, okay, well, actually, these bor these borders are quite porous, and there's quite a lot of flow of bodies, ideas, and diseases, uh, microbes as well. So to to be able to uh, present a more North American account was an important thing to be able to do. So I'd like to think that there's something in there for everyone. And um, I'm grateful for the chance to talk about it a bit more. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, one last question, Richard. We had a conversation earlier. You uh, you told me you liked the cover of the book. Mm. Um, you were telling me about the cover. I don't, I don't uh, know enough about the field, but if you'd like to, you know, explain briefly 
Well, right. Okay. So the cover uh, and re- listeners who are interested could very easily pull it pull it up online. Um, it could be what I love about it. It's so evocative and it resists a single interpretation. There are all these circles emerging out from underneath a pink triangle, and they extend outwards, radiate outwards uh, across the cover and into the distance. And it looks like it could be a fingerprint, for example, which really ties into the notion of identifying a single person responsible for the epidemic. It could be uh, the epicenter of an earthquake with shock waves radiating out from it. Uh, There's a long history of the Pink Triangle and its uh, relationship both to the gay community, but also to AIDS activism, which is also quite uh, resonant. And um, I, I think, yeah, there's I, I, I could I could say more, but there's uh, again, there's something in the book for everyone. I think there's something in the t- in the cover page for every, or the, in the, yeah. the cover. So I'm really uh, I should do a shout out to Isaac Tobin, who was the the artist. I was uh, really, really pleased with that. Yeah, nice. Um, OK, well, thanks a lot. I think uh, I'd say I don't want to keep you any longer. You have somewhere to go. <laughs> uh, thanks a lot for talking to me, Richard. Thank you for taking the time. All right. Okay, that's the show. Thanks a lot to Richard for talking to us. Um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed that in-depth interview. Yeah. <laughs> uh, long discussion about his book, which is available on Amazon and in Heifers in Cambridge. Okay, so we will uh, be back over the summer for you avid listeners so you can get your science fix. Um, in the meantime, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at BlueSidePod, or you can also send us uh, an email at bluesidepodcasts at gmail.com. See you next time. See you next time.